Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now on this market, I'm pleased to say, is David Balin, City Private Bank Chief Investment Officer. David, there are plenty of angry bears out there, and for good reason. The economic data is really not great, but the performance of the market has been something else. What's your takeaway? Well, let's put everything in a little bit of context today. We have $18 trillion worth of uh, debt that yields zero. So everyone is seeking yield. And of course, this has been an extraordinary rally in the bond market. So that's the backdrop. When we take a look at equities and everyone looks at the indices, they sit there and say, well, the indices are you know, incredibly high and probably overvalued. But they have to look into what the indices are, right? You've got market leaders that have been beneficiaries, especially in technology as a result of the pandemic. Just what we're doing today, you know, the substitution effect is alive and well. And secondly, and I haven't heard anything about this this morning, when we really look at the consumer data, it's been remarkably resilient in those areas where COVID has not been a big deal. So if you take out travel, you take out retail, you take out hotels, you take out you know, educational institutions and you take out small healthcare providers, about 11 or 12% of the economy, the rest of the economy has been rem- remarkably resilient. For example, you would have thought, you know, taking a look at the data in Florida, Texas, California, and South Carolina, that people would have started to travel less, that they would actually have started to you know, go back home and not, and not spend. And the exact opposite has been the case. The American consumer and the European consumer have continued to buy in spite of the fact that the virus is all around us. And that has been the surprising uh, event for me in terms of the economy as we look out. So, David, August is going to be really interesting then because the enhanced unemployment benefits have expired. Do you think that's going to be an important force to shape the August data or will it be more about what you've just discussed? I think August can be mild, Jonathan, and if we were to see that the the Congress did not pass anything, I think then you can have a further headwind from all of this. We went back and looked at the last 40 years of sort of these congressional standoffs, you know, and what we found is that there's always a compromise, at least historically there's always been a compromise. We've never been in exactly this situation. Um, So if we get a compromise in September, then I don't think we have anything to worry about in August. If we got no action on the part of Congress, that would be a pretty big deal. And David, this seems to be what the market is betting on right now, that there will be reason uh, eventually that will set in in Washington, D.C. How much has, though, the fiscal support in Washington, D.C. backstopped the recovery? I mean, part of the reason, for first of all, I'm not an angry bear, John, just to let you know. I'm not an angry bear. I'm just struggling to understand the uh, dire economic... And for people on radio who can't see David Balin's face right now. <laughs> I mean, David doesn't believe you, but carry on. Well, no, it's just that there's a lack of understanding here. The idea that you could have such a high unemployment rate, that you could have bankruptcies at a record pace and have such steady data. David, why is there this dissonance here? So I, I think you're, you're, we have to break up the points a little bit. First of all, the unemployment rate was expected to be far higher than it is now. At one point, people were talking about 20 percent unemployment rates, and now we're you know at 10 percent and coming down. And as I mentioned, that's largely concentrated. And the other thing that that we have to look at is really what happened to earnings. They were better than expected as well. And different parts of the market were really hit differently. The market is efficiently pricing the winners and the losers at the moment. All we have to do is look out six months and ask ourselves this question. What will happen when a, a good vaccine, one that really works, not the Russian version, but a real version, actually um, comes out with proper testing, and we know that there's going to be an effective treatment like there is for the flu for the, this pandemic? I think that's going to change everyone's mindset. 
And Lisa, you said something uh, just in, in the last segment prior to the top of the hour that's very important. You talked about the velocity of money. And that velocity takes time, and meaning that we've never had this kind of spending before. 10 to $12 trillion globally of liquidity, not just what's happening in the US, not just monetary, and but fiscal. That's, an, that's gonna have a, a, a tailwind to the market and a tailwind that's gonna be very stimulative in 21 and 22, as we've written to all of our clients in the last several weeks. It's, it's a very important tailwind and it will be the velocity of money going forward. So if you combine those two factors, this market for equities is not insane. And, uh, and Jonathan, you also said something that I, I wanted to touch upon. You talked about the fact that return expectations in the future should be modest because of how high the market is and you're exactly right. But there are parts of the market that are going to roar ahead in the future and parts like technology that are going to move very modestly ahead because they're so fully priced. They've discounted so much of the future already today. There was a lot in there. Let's unpack a little bit of it. When it comes to velocity of money, are you predicting that inflation is going to pick up? Um, it could pick up a very small amount next year or the year after. We, we're not making a major call on inflation. What we are making a major call in is a recovery in economies that's high, greater than people expect. So, for example, in Europe, right, where everyone is sort of you know, very tentative, we think next year could be a 4% GDP year, and we haven't had one of those in a decade, right? And we also feel like the, uh, the Chinese economy and especially the, the Pan-Asian economies can do better than expected because of the diminutiveness impact on, on those economies by the virus and the fact that exports are going to pick up much more you know, than I think is projected uh, in 2021. I hear a long on banks. I just heard a long on industrials. Is that right, David? Yeah, well, I do like a long on banks. Again, to Lisa's earlier point, I think we're going to see the yield curve steepen for a combination of the fact that there is an enormous amount of issuance and because the economy is going to pick up and that's going to change inflation expectations slightly going forward. And if you take a look at dividend yields for banks, you would think that they're very attractive today and they'll stay attractive. And of course, then there'll be the appreciation if that's right. Plus, there's been limited credit losses because of the programs in the United States in particular. So we like that. And in terms of industrials, the larger ones, Jonathan, are, are pretty fully priced now. Uh, but a lot of the small and medium caps are not fully priced. They're 20 to 30 percent you know, lower. They've had 70 percent negative earnings surprises in the second quarter, which is pretty abysmal. And so there's a fair amount of room of snapback in the small and medium sized industrial companies in the U.S. and in Europe. Just before we let you go, the regional bias, you mentioned Europe a couple of times there. We had this conversation with David Riley of Blue Bay Asset Management about the European trade, just facing some challenges in the last couple of days. David, what is the regional bias for you? Yeah, I mean, to me, the last couple of days are creating a little bit of that buying opportunity. I, I think we have to see real data. And the market, because of all of the news flow, of course, is very focused on what's happening today, what's happening today. We're looking out, you know, for City Private Bank at six to 12 months, right, in terms of our view, and then 12 to 18 months from investing. So when we think about that, we like Europe uh, on that basis, especially uh, industrials that have dividends associated with them. Uh, we like some of the mortgage REITs here as a substitute for some of the concern that Lisa has for junk bonds. You know, and we like uh, uh, Latin America as a snapback play, uh, specifically Mexico, as a result of when the U.S. is fully operational, you know, imports and exports from Mexico will, will really go much higher. We don't like that as a long-term play. So there's a lot for investors to do. And I think that it's moving their portfolios away from technology where they've had this extraordinary gain uh, and into some of these other sectors that will allow them to make alpha extra profits over the course of the next uh, 12 to 18 months. I like a lot of stuff Lisa doesn't like either. David, oh, great to catch up with well, you. David, I don't know why you're David trying to get Phelan, me in trouble, but thank you. David Phelan, private bank. <laughs> we appreciate your time. <laughs> thank you, David.
Joining us now is Michael Capen, Barclays Chief US Economist. Michael, great to catch up with you, sir. Are we still working our way through these mechanical distortions going from shutdown to reopen? We are, but I think that's a little bit in the rearview mirror now. I think Mike McKee's uh, point at the end there is what was important. The, the downside miss in July is most likely related to those upward revisions in June. So on net, my, my guess is when we look at the data, the, the level of retail sales in, in July will, will likely be about where we were expecting. So things have slowed, but that, in my view, that was to be expected. So two months ago, we had about an 18% rise in retail sales, about 8% last month. Let's call it somewhere between 1% and 2% this month. I think that's consistent with the, an initial snapback and, and ongoing recovery. So I think most of that lights on, the economies are back open, is fading out of, of the data right now. I think the July data in total suggests the economy still has momentum. The open question, of, as you've been debating this morning, is whether we're going to have enough momentum to carry that through into September and October. Do you have a sense, based on the more granular data that you look at, of how much of this spending has been driven or supported by the fiscal support that we have seen so far? I think the, the government transfer payments have been crucial in underpinning this virtuous cycle of spending leading to an increase in production, leading to a pickup in employment and, and that virtuous cycle. Um, if you look at personal income in June, so we're lagging here a month, but that's all the data we have. Personal income in June is about 19.9 trillion. That's about three to four to five percent above where we were in February. If you subtract out the unemployment payments and the pandemic assistance, the rebate checks that were sent to households, income is down more like 8%. So I think it's been completely key in replacing lost wage and salary income and in effect, keeping income for households consistent with full employment. So if we don't get those kinds of payments going forward and we don't get a phase four, income has to adjust to an economy with 10 to 11% unemployment. Uh, and I think that's the debate we're having. When does phase four come? Does it come? Will it be sufficient to keep this virtuous cycle going? Yeah, and when will this virtuous cycle be able to sustain itself without ongoing fiscal support? I mean, there's a sort of philosophical argument. Should we be paying every American to buy a car, right? Should we be paying everyone to go out to eat every night because that supports the economy? Some people might say, look, if that injects enough uh, money into the economy and it gets new jobs, maybe it's worth it. But at what point can we say, look, this will sustain itself. People will go out and get a job. So that's subjective. The answer to that is subjective. I, I certainly think that you know the recession was induced by shutdown orders. So I think it's reasonable to say we should kind of buttress uh, household income on the other side as a result. Is two to three months worth of support enough? My view would be leaving the economy with a 10 to 11 percent unemployment rate is probably not strong enough, and and several more months worth of of benefits would would be helpful because I think what you what you would want to do in, in essence is underpin two to three to four more months of, of about 750 to one and a half million jobs per month then I think you could take your foot off and say look I think we've done enough to get this recovery on a self-sustaining basis let's see where we are from here backing off when the unemployment rate is is 10 percent or, or a touch higher to me seems a, more risky than it needs to be. Michael, how much of that money that was distributed in the last several months, enhanced unemployment benefits, the fiscal transfers, the direct aid, the direct checks to Americans, how much of that has been spent 
and how much of it is sitting in bank accounts saved. Do you know, can we figure that out somehow? Uh, we can we can back out rough estimates. I mean, the savings rate did go as high as about 33 percent. It's coming back down. Uh, I think we're probably one to two months away, about a month away from from having spent nearly all of the pandemic assistance, whether it's the rebate checks or the unemployment insurance. Uh, so I think we're kind of reaching the last 30 to 45 days uh, of that. So I think we've spent a lot of it, but but not all of it. I think there's still some accumulated savings there uh, that could support spending as we move into August. I think as you push into September, I think it's hard to argue uh, that that's going to be the case. There's clear pain in this economy, Michael. You and I and all of us can agree on that. I'm just trying to work out when this starts to show up in the headline data. Do you expect the test to be in August then, or is it in September? Because the enhanced unemployment benefits, as we know, have expired. And I'm just trying to work out whether August is that moment where we have that test of going cold turkey somewhat, or whether it's September. I would write, as from what I know this morning, I would say it's probably more September than it is August. Uh, at least the, the labor market data so far in August seem to, to suggest that momentum is continuing. And I think there's a difference here between whether things are leveling out or turning for the worse. Uh, so I, I would put a little more uh, emphasis into September data versus versus August, but obviously we will see. Going forward, what's your biggest concern in terms of the data that you're watching that could indicate a further slowdown than perhaps people are expecting? Well, I think it's it's I don't think this answer is going to surprise you, but it, it is employment. And so uh, if if households are spending enough, production will stay elevated and, and employment will will continue. The rehiring will continue apace. Uh, but if we get a break in that rehiring rate, then then I think all, all bets are off in in that regard. We pay you know, a lot of attention to the high frequency data on mobility, as well as everything we're seeing in, in, the, in the labor market data, uh, because that's where household confidence and household spending ultimately will come. Yes, it's, it's spending is being supported by government payments today, uh, but it's got to be more organic through employment growth going forward. So I'll also be very interested in the in the University of Michigan consumer sentiment number later this morning. Will it show a third straight monthly uh, decline uh, off of the, the levels we saw a few months ago? That could be a sign that households are feeling a little more shaky. If that number holds up, it, it may give you the view that labor markets are, are, are better than we are uh, characterizing them at present and sliding away from government benefit assistance may not be as risky as we think. So I do think that's an important number to look at later this morning. Michael, just before we let you go, Lisa would like to know what you think of high-yield credit oh my in gosh. the United States. Seriously, <laughs> really? If you've got anything to say. Do you like triple Cs? I like triple Cs. Uh, I'm, I'm not an, uh, an angry bear <laughs> at, at this point. Um, okay, I, I, do, I, I do think that the economy is showing some good resiliency despite the high numbers of COVID cases. I think that can continue, but I think it needs some additional federal support to do that. I love the response of a serious economist. Michael Gay from the Barclays. It's good to see you, sir, as always. always. Let's bring in David Riley, Blue Bay Asset Management Chief Investment Strategist. He joins us right now. David, great to catch up with you, sir. Let's talk about it. Is the European story facing a little bit of a challenge at the moment? I think it is. I think the narrative that has been building is that you know, Europe's had a better pandemic than the US. It's been able to uh, contain the virus more uh, effectively. And even on the policy 
uh, front, even though the Fed kind of got ahead of the uh, game. On fiscal policy, we had the you know, EU recovery fund while we've got the stalemate in uh, Washington. And so it's been part of this story of a you know, stronger euro, uh, to some extent a sort of rotation uh, from sort of growth to value and, 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 and the valuation opportunities within uh, Europe. But you know, what, that, that narrative is getting challenged because, you know, cases in the U.S. and infection rates are actually um, declining, although still at a worryingly high um, level. And, and we're clearly seeing a pickup in infection rates across uh, several countries uh, in, in Europe. And it's going to be hard as well, I think, for, for, for Europe to sort of outperform and sustain a strong recovery because it still is so dependent on global growth and global trade. So, David... For me, there's two issues, and we shouldn't conflate the two. There's re-denomination risk, which arguably has diminished a whole lot because of that fiscal agreement in the last month. Yeah. Just the idea that the probability that the eurozone blows up goes down somewhat. And then there's repricing the recovery. For a relative trade right now, what's more compelling? The United States, which is trying to correct course, or Europe, which is facing some trouble? I think from, I mean, certainly from a sort of, uh, relative value and, and from looking at it from a kind of credit perspective, I actually do quite like um, parts of the US credit market. And I know Lisa's with you and she may be surprised by this after yes, we I had uh, the print of a two and... I love how every credit investor um, in the world literally uh, comes uh, on this show uh, and when they're uh, bullish, uh, they uh, have to say, Lisa's not going to like this. Carry on. a reputation. Carry on, David. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, look, I'm, I'm based in Europe and, uh, you know, back in 2017, uh, the European high yield market uh, was yielding around 2.3%. Uh, so we know yields can go, uh, high yield can become a, a little bit of a mis, uh, misnomer. And, um, you know, I, I do think that you, you do need to move down uh, the, the, the credit spectrum. I think double Bs are um, too pricey, um, but I think there is value in the sort of single B names you've been adding even within some of the um, triple Cs as well. And you know, US high yield on a sort of beta adjusted basis, you know, I, you know, based on what you would have expected it to perform relative to e either the Russell or, or the S and P 500, is actually uh, lag equity. So you know, when you've got that search for yield and you've got the treasuries where they are, and I know this is a very familiar. Um, story, then I think some uh, uh, value there. You know, in, in Europe as well, I think the more the issue is just, uh, you know, as you said, uh, Jonathan, you know, that sort of breakup risk has diminished. And so, you know, I've liked the periphery. Um, but again, the peripheral spreads have come a long way. So it's kind of reducing some of the uh, risks that we have there as well. Well, David, I would hate to disappoint with my reputation and for you saying that you are buying uh, single B and triple C rated credit, the lowest rated of high yield debt at a time of growing bankruptcies. How do you gauge the insolvency risk with this idea that you are searching for yield, but it still is lower than perhaps it would be if you didn't have a Fed put? Yeah, no, that's, 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 that's absolutely um, correct. I mean, firstly, um, in terms of the you know bankruptcy and uh, default risk, yeah, you know, I think the market right now is pricing the U.S. high yield defaults will peak at around about sort of nine ten percent um, at the end of the year, and I think that's probably about right. And you know, despite all the sort of uh, commentary around the pricing within uh, the credit market, the reality is is that um, it has become quite bifurcated. Um, when we look at the you know proportion of companies. 
um, and credits that are pricing at distressed uh, levels. Um, those also yielding sort of more than 10%. It's around about 8% of the market. I think we know who the default um, candidates are. So I don't think we're going to get a, a negative surprise unless, of course, you know, the economy, you know, economic recovery stalls. And that could happen if we don't get a deal out of um, Washington on the fiscal side. So I, I, I think for the market to rally further, I think there's going to have to be some compression. So I think, you know, the single Bs have got room to, 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 to move higher. Um, but we're still trying to, as, as credit selectors, active uh, investors, you know, Go for those uh, single B names which um, have less direct COVID exposure, where we still think the, the, the overall business model is going to be viable in this kind of post-COVID world. David Riley, great to catch up, sir. Really good to hear from you. David Riley there of Thank Blue you. Bay Asset Management. President Trump there touting the historic deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates to begin normalizing relations. Well, joining us now is Lupin Rahman, PIMCO Global Head of EM Sovereign Credit. Lupin, thank you so much for joining us. There's a lot going on in the Middle East, which really started also with uh, that horrible blast in Beirut. When you look at the region, uh, how much is changing for investors? I think that there's, a, there's so many moving parts in the Middle East. I think that the biggest factor continues to be thinking about resiliency, which economies are going to be able to come out of this crisis and this pandemic with uh, relatively resilient macro and political frameworks. You know, we've seen across uh, both the GCC and the Levant um, quite a significant shift in terms of political allegiances. And essentially, those are going to interact with the macroeconomic outlooks to really assess which countries are going to come out of this stronger um, versus those who are really going to be a lot more weaker going back. And so, uh, do you have any insight, Lupin? Where you know, where are you looking at it as potential, um, you know, beacons of hope? So I think that countries that really have been able to withstand this shock are the the more high income, high net savers in the region. So Qatar, UAE. To, to some extent, Saudi Arabia. I think what we will really be looking for across those names, however, is whether they're really going to be able to adjust to lower commodity prices. There's quite a lot of fiscal consolidation that needs to be done in the likes of um, Saudi and uh, the United Arab Emirates. Um, and it's likely that we are going to see progress towards that once the imminent shock of the pandemic passes us. So in 2021 and beyond, we should be able to see some uh, fiscal consolidation, which should help their credit trajectories. There is the concern, Lupin, going forward, not with the uh, energy-heavy nations, but I'm thinking in particular of Lebanon, which is insolvent and now has no government, and the bondholders don't even know who to negotiate with, and it raises the specter of huge principal write-downs that really haven't been seen in recent history for the emerging market sovereign complex. How do you price that in, given the fact that a lot of people have shrugged off geopolitical risk and just said, you know what? Central banks printing money, risk on. So I think that, you know, thinking about very large left tail risks, as we're seeing in some emerging market sovereigns, is going to be a key factor of thinking about credit risk. So you would have seen that essentially in the EM high yield space, you have had sovereign 
spreads which really haven't compressed compared to the emerging market investment grade space. And essentially, that the fact that that spread compression hasn't occurred signals to us that there's a huge amount of uncertainty related to some of the, the issues that, that you've raised. What the market, however, is pricing in is reasonable support from the international communities, whether it be through IMF programs or larger, more broader, broadly coordinated support through the development banks. Well, let's go there then. How sufficient have some of that uh, those backstops been, given the fact that, for example, uh, the World Bank and the IMF have postponed some of the interest payments or suspended them for some of these nations, but there hasn't been big talk about principal write-downs as of yet? So I think that there could be a lot more uh, that could have been done from the IFI's point of view. In particular, we uh, would have wanted to see uh, an SDR increase uh, similar to what the IMF did in the aftermath of the 2008 crisis. That essentially is a form of global QE for all countries. Essentially, it enables them to um, have greater liquidity support. I'm not necessarily, um, you know, in, in the camp that you would need to have sharp write-downs. For the bulk of emerging markets, the pandemic is a liquidity shock, as in it is much harder for them either because they've lost tourism revenues or remittance revenues for, say, more, most of 2020 and maybe part of 2021. They are, they're finding it difficult to generate dollars, whereas normally in, in a usual um, year they would be able to service their debt relatively easily. So I think the shock is a liquidity shock for most countries rather than a solvency shock which would require greater write-downs. If you look at you know some of the things that we also need to, to keep an eye on, I don't know what you do with Turkey. It, I mean the lira has has gone really through a wild ride um, over the last couple of weeks. What, what stabilizes Turkey for investors right now? So I think the central bank easing um, into basically reducing liquidity in the system means that you are going to see some stability going forward. So there has been a signal that they are looking to tighten liquidity, uh, and they have done so much more incrementally than, than the market probably, probably warrants um, it to be. However, I think that essentially if you look at the past and see that as a playbook, the central bank is essentially moving along the, the same ways as it has done in 2018. So tightening the, the liquidity conditions onshore and then eventually um, moving towards, you know, raising the effective interest rate. And hopefully they won't have to hike in terms of emergency hikes like they did in 2018. Um, the, the risk here is that you know every single crisis that Turkey faces um, results in these ad hoc measures and you know really little too late in terms of tightening measures, meaning that every starting point is worse than the prior. Lupin, so um, I mean, moving on because we want to get through quite a lot of countries with you. When you look at China, it seems that the recovery is really led by a lot of industrial growth, but retail sales are under, is undercutting some of the rebound. What kind of recovery do you see in China, and how do investors play that country? 
I think that the recovery is going to be a bit more um, haphazard than you would have expected from a normal recession, because this isn't a normal recession. And so uh, the, the factors that we're seeing in terms of momentum from retail versus the manufacturing side of the economy is more or less what you would expect, given that essentially services and retail is going to be a bit more slower to move. Um, however, the important thing to, to note is that the economic recovery is underway um, and it is more or less in line with, with our expectations. And this should help the rest of the, the Asian economies come, come up and recover as well. This is interesting to hear you say, Lupin, because some people are saying that even though China is recovering, it's not going to get back to where it was in prior years, at least not recently. And this sort of puts some pressure on other nations in the region, especially as supply chains start shifting. What gives you confidence that there will be a support in the area, given all of the trade tensions as well as the economic pressure still remaining from the pandemic? So I think that it will take time for um, the world economy to recover from the pandemic. So we are not forecasting a V-shaped recovery by any means. And essentially, when you look at the kind of um, GDP shock that the China, Chinas of this world have, have experienced, really it will take some time in terms of years to come back to the pre-crisis levels. Um, what I do think will happen, however, is recovery led by the developed markets will be a key factor in driving emerging market growth. Um, the bulk of emerging markets that export to developed markets will actually be um, seeing that improvement in economic momentum. Um, I think that Regardless of that, given the, the pace of the virus in certain emerging markets like in Brazil and in, in India, the, the risk of second waves in EM is there, and that is likely to be a bit of a break to any economic rebound that is led by the trade cycle. Meanwhile, we do have uh, tensions picking up between the U.S. and China with representatives meeting to assess the phase one trade deal, not necessarily negotiating any type of phase two deal. Can this be tradable? I mean, is this a tradable event or is this just something to watch to sort of gauge for future measures? I think it's something to watch for sure in terms of how, uh, how you know, other areas um, may pan out. Um, I think that, you know, the, the immediate trade impacts may be much more in terms of sentiment um, and in terms of uh, currencies and the dollar. But really, those other, the, there are much larger other factors which are driving the, the, both the dollar and um, general risk sentiment. Lupin, thank you so much for joining us. Lupin Raman, their PIMCO, Global Head of EM Sovereign Credit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.